All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is, again, a very familiar passage. Um, it is uh, the story of David and Goliath. And we are, at this point, we're supposed to be familiar with David. David has been anointed as king. We had that as one part of a, a, a passage that we studied. But he has also become acquainted with Saul. Saul was uh, king at that time, and he, God had already rejected him. The Bible told us that he had like a troubling spirit on him, so he was miserable for a time. And David had come to play the lyre, the uh, musical instrument, and to sing, and it had soothed Saul for a, a time. Um, so this passage is one of the most loved of all the Bible stories, and um, I can tell you that the way that it's written is part of that. It is full of details. It is very descriptive. It, is, it, it, is, um, it, it builds tension. It is done in such a way that, it, that you're supposed to get just drawn into the story here in a way that you don't get drawn into other stories. Um, but what we have to see here is that the, the theology from chapter 16 follows into chapter 17. Chapter 16 was busy telling us that you don't look at the outside appearances, you don't look at what the world presents to you, you look on the inside. And so then when we look in chapter 17 and we see Goliath and he's tall and he's got this armor, he's got all these things, that is the writer kind of drawing us in to make sure we learned our lesson not to look at the outside things but to look at what is on the inside. Now popular culture would tell us that um, this is a story uh, about, you know, if you're courageous enough you can overcome any obstacle well that's not the way that the Bible actually presents it um, in this passage we're going to see the Lord as the hero and David we will see him for what he is David is an example of faith so his example of faith in God uh, no matter the odds has captured the imagination of Bible readers for millennia um, this story is probably over 2,500 years old, probably, I mean, it happened obviously 3,000 years ago, but w would have been recorded almost contemporary to when it did happen. So we're looking at a very old story here. Um, it's not as old as time, although it's probably older than most of the stories that people say are old as time. Um, so let's look at the sermon in the sentence. The Lord will not permit any force to stand in the face of his faithful followers. Uh, if I'd put underlined words in the sermon in a sentence, faithful would be that. Um, yes, we face opposition, and yes, it does stand in front of us, but when we are faithful to God, it can't remain in front of us because God will remove that obstacle. So let's look at this passage. It is a long chapter, but it flows pretty quick, um, and, and so we will go through this. It's uh, 58 verses, <laughs> but we'll get through it pretty quick. So uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 1 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Scotch, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Scotch and Ezkai in that place there. Uh, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. This valley would have been a, like a dry creek bed. They call it a, a wadi, W-A-D-I. Um, when the rainy season would come, and Israel does have a rainy season, it's, it's kind of like right after, well, actually in a couple of months, so January, February, they have a rainy season, and so there are dry riverbeds that flow for a time as that water is, is, is flowing off headed down towards the Jordan River. And so this would have been at this time when it was time to go for you know, people to go to battle, it would have been dry. So it's a dry riverbed or creek bed, I guess you'd say, separating them at that particular time. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Puts him at nine foot nine inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. It's about 126 pounds. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear 
was like a weaver's beam, and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 15 pounds. So you can imagine a, a stick that would have been, because it would have been longer than him, so you're looking at maybe a 15-foot pole, and on the end of it is a 15-pound weight, and, and he can wield that and fight with it. So you can imagine this man being a little um, physically intimidating. Uh, and his shield-bearer went before him. Um, and, and just to kind of help with that imagery, Goliath could have carried his own shield, but his shield-bearer uh, would have been carrying a shield that was more like a, like a tower shield. There were two basic styles that were employed in those days, a small round shield, or say small, but big enough to guard your body, but something you would have wore on your arm. And then there was more like of a tower shield, which would have had kind of an arc to it. And so his shield bearer would have been a man who would have been holding a shield much taller than him going forward. So the whole imagery here is that Goliath is impossible to defeat. He is invincible. Not only is he a mountain of a man, but he's better protected than any Israelite would have been. So this is supposed to strike fear in the hearts of the Israelites. It's intended to put the reader on edge. So be on edge. Um, it says that uh, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephraimite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of the three sons who went to battle are Elab, the firstborn, the next of him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward, took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an epaph of the parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel... When they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make uh, his father's house free in Israel. That's tax-free. Pretty big deal. Uh, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Elab, the oldest brother, heard, or the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to all the men, or to the men. And Elab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a few words? And he turned away 
and from him, uh, uh, turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, uh, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Like he literally just left the field, but he used to. Uh, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when you came, or when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and, the, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistines moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Then the Philistine said to David, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the, the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Okay. All right. So let's get into this. So we're going to break it into three parts. We're going to look at the evil challenge first because that kind of sets the whole stage. And like any good story, the first thing that happens is it becomes impossible for the good guys to win. That's, that's the whole point. 
Um, so again, this is a very popular story, as you can see from the reading of it. It's full of details. It is rich in detail, so much so, you know, you think about certain things. It, it mentions how many um, cheeses David was to bring. It, it actually mentions him pulling a sword out of a sheath. So many things that weren't necessary to get the point across, just so that we can see this come into vivid color. We can see it happen as it's happening. That's the way that it was written. It was written to create tension and to create a dramatic point of emphasis. This is a very well written story and that's one of the reasons I think that people have latched on to it so much but it is also so intriguing because you do have a young man who is not equipped for war according to the standards of the world but he goes against the greatest champion that the Philistines could bring about and yet he is victorious. Um, so when did this happen? That's a, that's a good question because we know what happened after the events of chapter 16. So David is anointed. He has already become a courtier to Saul's court. Uh, we know that Saul had sent to David and said, let me keep David because uh, he's too valuable to me here. That happened in chapter 16. But by this point, apparently, either the, the troubling spirits have left Saul or he's kind of lost um, uh, a little bit of favor with David, whatever. Anyway, David's been back and forth between the court and between his father's fields. So he has matured, probably matured enough to where Saul didn't immediately recognize him, but he's not old enough to be a part of the military because David certainly would have been. That'd be about the age of 20. So maybe his beards come in, maybe he let his hair grow wild or whatever, but for whatever reason, Saul didn't recognize him for the young man that had played the lyre and soothed his soul when he had the troubling spirits. So that's one thing that we do know. Um, so it falls within a window of maybe four years or so after David was anointed, uh, but that's a little difficult to tell. Um, but what we do know is that Israel was still living in a contested land. Yes, they, um, they possessed a chunk of the promised land, but the Philistines believed that it belonged to them. And so part of living in this contested land is that you're pretty much always going to be in battle. That was going to be a yearly thing. They were always going to have a fight in front of them. And so this particular battle took place about 15 miles west of Bethlehem. And again, it's, it's, it's set across this valley. So you've had a rise and then you'd have had the, the creek bed, the dry creek bed, and you'd have had another rise. And so the armies would have camped across from each other on the, the, the rises. And before we talk about Goliath and the other things, I need to remind you that the people of Israel, probably the best they would have had for armor, except for the king and maybe a very few others, would have been leather. Uh, many of them would have brought the same things that they farmed their land with to fight the Philistines. They wouldn't have been bringing swords and shields and javelins and all all these other sorts of things they would have probably brought hoes and axes and, and whatever they had to actually fight that's what they would have brought and so what we're looking at here is is, is kind of the the difference between a ragtag band of civilians that want to protect protect their home and probably a, a more professional military equipped with some mercenaries so that's very likely what we have going on here so when um, the, the armies of Israel arrive, they're ready for a, a, a normal sort of battle. Saul and the Israelites were prepared for a typical battle. That's what they were prepared for, um, to go out and, and to fight. Um, they hoped maybe, uh, they would have hoped for the, the, Israelite, I mean the, the Philistines to charge them. Um, because if they're standing on a hill and the Philistines are, are, are coming up towards them, that takes away a lot of the advantages uh, that, that you might would have had. So maybe that was their hope, that the Philistines would have been prideful because they had better uh, equipment, maybe even more soldiers, and so maybe they would have charged, and then that would have given them an opportunity to be successful. But they, uh, they get quite a curveball. Um, when we're fighting for the Lord, we should never assume that that battle is going to go the way that we expect it to go. So Israel, maybe they could have depended on some military strategy if things were going to go normal. Maybe they could have taken advantage of the terrain. Maybe they could have done some night mission or, or, or sneaky mission like Jonathan had done earlier, but that wasn't the way that it was going to be this time. And we do need to remember that. Whenever we are trying to serve the Lord, the battle's not going to go the way that we expect it to go. There's always going to be something. And 
you know, it's not just a literary device uh, that the writer used to make this an impossible situation. It actually was impossible uh, by man's standards. And, and that's something that we have to recognize is that you're going to face impossible situations by man's standards. And then God is going to work that out. Think about how many times you've heard the story of a Christian say, well, it just it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have worked. Shouldn't have made, whether it be mathematical sense or medical sense or, or whatever, it just shouldn't have happened that way. Um, you know, I, I've heard people talk about surviving car wrecks and they say, well, there's just no way I should have survived. If you see the car, you know I shouldn't have survived that. And I've heard people talk about their budget and say, I should have been broke. I should have been bankrupt. I should have been gone. You know, you, you've heard people say, well, the doctors all gave up on me. You've heard all those stories. But God steps in. When we fight a battle for the Lord, we have to understand that the rules are always going to be different. So let's do talk about Goliath a little bit. I'll try not to get carried away. But Goliath would have likely been a Hittite mercenary. His name has Hittite origins. Uh, the Hittites were some of the first people to actually use iron in battle. They predate the Assyrians as far as military technology, using iron and things like that go. Um, but he probably would have been hired. And that's one of the things we have to realize about the Philistines is that if they were more wealthy than the Israelites, and they would have been, they controlled blacksmiths, they controlled metal, they would have been more wealthy they probably could hire mercenary armies. So they could hire people from the Hittites. They might have even hired some Egyptians. We don't know. But what we do know is that they came to this battle well-equipped. When we look at Goliath, the, the biblical description does tell us that he's like 9 foot 9 inches tall. Um, we know that there is a disease, at least now, um, the, the common name, they call it giantism. Um, and people do get reasonably tall um, and reasonably large. And, and there's you know, been a few people that have been famous that, that have been pretty tall. But that comes with a whole lot of medical issues. Those people are not healthy. Um, I'm thinking, I can't remember the guy's name. I think it was like maybe in the 1920s or 30s. But it was a guy that grew really, really tall. His feet were like a size 23 or something. And he only lived to be about 22, 23 years old. And actually what got him is something to do with some of his shoes, rubbed a sore uh, in his foot. He got an infection and he wound up dying from it. Um, but physically, he wouldn't have been strong. He wasn't strong. Physically, he was not like a, a, a specimen of, of a warrior. That's not what he was. Whatever blood was flowing through Goliath's veins, it, it, he didn't have a disease. He was a warrior. He was going to be an intimidating person from the word go. So you can, you can look at the equipment that he brings to the battlefield, uh, and you can, you can even remember what Saul says. He's been a warrior from his youth. He would have had a reputation. I, I don't think that Goliath would have been completely unknown to the people of Israel when he walked out of the lines, the ranks on the first day. Besides, when you're almost 10 feet tall, how do you hide among a, a, bunch, among a bunch of people that are five foot and a half? You just don't hide that way. So probably they already knew, uh-oh, there's a big guy over there. There's a real big guy. And, and when he steps out and says, yeah, one-on-one, -on -one, I think that began to really intimidate the people. But you look at what he had. So um, the only, we don't have a lot of archaeological um, information to tell us what the Philistines look like. Um, but what we do know is that they, according to Egyptian pottery, they went to battle with like a feather headdress, like a, not, not like Native American, but sort of like a feather headdress, some kind of flare that they had on their heads, not for protection. Um, but this account tells us that Goliath wore a bronze helmet. Um, and so what we have to understand is that his particular equipment is set up for one-on-one -on -one combat, not standing in a wall of men and fighting another wall of men, but basically, you know, 360-degree protection. And so this bronze helmet would have been what he had. Not like anybody could really reach up there and hit him in the head, uh, but that would have been part of that protection. Um, and so when we look at this, this, this male shirt, male was around, but male would have been extremely rare at this time because... You didn't have machines. You didn't have just bunches and bunches of blacksmiths. And mail took a long, long time to make. And so this would have been an incredibly valuable piece of armor. Um, and, and for the weapons that the Israelites could have brought to bear, they probably, there was probably no way that they could have cut him through his mail. Just, just probably no way that they could have done that. Uh, they wouldn't have had metals strong enough to cut his mail, period. Um, so when we think about that, he already looks absolutely invincible. So it mentions a sword, the word that's used for sword there, 
means like scimitar, so you're talking about that long curved sword that he would have had. So that would have been an intimidating thing um, j just to see because remember, they weren't allowed to have blacksmiths. They didn't have swords. They didn't have you know, weapons of war in that way. And so this would have been very, very different just to see him there. He would have had this spear. And so there's two ways. It says that it's like a weaver's rod. So probably it would have been somewhere around, because normal people would carry about a 10-foot long spear. Um, so his might have been a little bit longer, like 15 feet or something like that. Anyway, it normally is about 5 to 6 feet taller than you. Um, and so that would have been that. And, and some people are saying, well, that just means that how large uh, in diameter that spear would have been. But there's another idea that maybe he kept it on a strap on his arm. So that when he when, would plunge, it was strapped to his arm so that he could, come, he could, he could bring it back because it tends to get stuck in a body. And so that would have been part of it, but the javelin would have been a throwing implement that he had. Okay, so, so he's armed up, weapons, things that the Israelites wouldn't have had. You just got to imagine the kind of strength to, to have you know, a 15-pound a, a spearhead on the end of a spear that's 15 feet long. That'd be tough. You ought to try that someday. Um, that would have been really, really tough to carry around. And he was a man, a strong, powerful man. It's fair to call him a giant. There's nobody like Goliath walking around on the face of the earth today and hasn't been in, in recorded, not since we've had cameras. The, the, there has not been somebody like Goliath for sure. So in addition to that, he has the shield bearer. I mentioned it when I was reading. Um, so the shield bearer would have probably been carrying around a, a shield that would have been pushing eight foot tall. Um, it would have been made out of wood, but it would have been, been uh, banded in at least bronze. There would have been, you know, some, some metal inlaid like a shield boss or something like that on the front of it. He would have been very well protected. When you looked at Goliath, you would have thought, how in the world is someone even supposed to attack this man? Why do you need all these advantages when you're this much bigger than all of us? The Jews were kind of known as smaller people. I mean, 5'3", five, 5'4", five, would have been an average height. And so if, if, if Goliath stood nine foot tall, he was twice as big as any of, any of them pretty much. Except for maybe one guy. There was one guy that stood a head taller than everybody else. That would have been Saul, right? Saul would have been probably the most reasonable champion to step out and fight for Israel. Yes, he's your king and that's a pretty big risk, but he was the one guy physically that could have at least stood and looked up and Felt like he had a chance against Goliath, but we don't see that in the story at all. So that's definitely something that, that would, have, would have maybe been a little um, interesting. So to sum all that up, Goliath presented a unique challenge that no one, soldier or king, had the courage to face. This part of it is a little bit about courage, um, but the thing is, is when you approach things from a worldly point of view, courage is all you got. If, if you're looking at it from a worldly point of view, is Goliath unbeatable? The answer is yes. And so it doesn't inspire a whole lot of courage. Um, you know, and here's the thing. Even if nobody was ready to fight Goliath because of how he looked, when he said what he said, I defy the, the well, he called them the children of Saul. I defy the armies of God. When he said that, people should have gotten fired up. I think that's what lit the fire under David. People should have got fired up and said, wait a minute, he just made this a spiritual battle. This was going to be a physical thing, and now he made it a spiritual battle. We should be ready for that. But nobody, nobody knew how to live with that kind of faith. Nobody knew how to live with that kind of, you know, I guess, uh, focus to, to, to ignore the things around him and just focus on God himself. So Goliath challenged all of Israel, God's people, and they were afraid, ultimately because they only knew how to rely upon themselves. In the camp of Israel, faith overcame fear. So now let's look at this unlikely champion. There, there's just a couple of phrases that are just, they're just fun, um, just because. So like in verse 12, right there at the beginning, uh, it says, or right at the end of verse 11, it says, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 12 says, now David... And I like that because it reminds us that even though they're afraid, even though this seems hopeless for the people, there's David. Now, we've all read the story of David and Goliath, so we know how it ends. But imagine if you didn't know 
you knew that maybe what we already read, that David had been anointed as king, but maybe that was all you knew. You knew that he'd been anointed as king, you knew that he could play an instrument, but then it says, now David. And I really do in my mind, I have a vision of this, this guy that, you know, he had been in the court, um, and you know how it is, it's almost like playing for the Yankees, I'm sure he had to shave, he had to keep his hair dressed and all that kind of stuff, but, but he went back out to tend the fields of his, of his father's sheep, and I'm sure he just kind of let himself go wild. Um, he would have been in excellent physical condition because there wasn't enough food to not be in excellent physical condition. Um, he would have, you know, been the kind of guy that could have moved well on his feet. He would have been the kind of guy you look at and you're like, well, I don't really know what this kid can do. And so that's David. Now, um, David, we know that David was not a perfect person. We know sibling rivalries exist. The way that his older brother responded to him right away, I know you're evil and you just wanted to watch the battle. Uh, David probably did have battle on the brain. He probably was kind of obsessed with fighting. I mean, he lived in a culture of war. He had to because they were in a contested land. They were always fighting the Philistines or, or somebody was always fighting them. So you can see how he might have been a little obsessed with that. But David was doing what he was supposed to do. He was taking care of the sheep of his father. And his father, just like any father would be, he was worried about his sons. His three oldest sons were away at battle and they wanted, he, uh, Jesse wanted to know how they were doing. So he sends a care package of food and provisions to his sons. He sends the cheeses to the commander of, of his sons just to, just to you know, let him know how he's doing. And then Jesse asks for a token, some token in return. And so um, he sends David on his way. So this is 40 days in. Um, when we think about ancient battles, we usually don't think about long, drawn-out affairs. We think about a clash, a battle, it happens, it's either a, a win or a loss, but it kind of happens and it's over. We don't think about these long standoffs or drawn out affairs. The only time things would go a long time is if it was a siege, and Jesse knew that it wasn't a siege. So 40 days in, he's thinking, okay, well, I really don't know. And, and we remember that, that when David went to Saul's court in the beginning, Jesse made sure he had enough food and, and provisions to, to not be a burden on the king anyway. So so Jesse's a really good father in terms of making sure that his boys have what they need and that they're not, a, they're not some kind of draw on somebody else, that they're not a burden on somebody else. And so he sends David. David had some pretty clear instructions. Um, but when we look at this, God had a plan here. This wasn't happenstance. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't that, you know, David just happened to be there just coincidentally God had a plan here. So Goliath would make his speech two times a day, morning and evening. And David rose early one morning. He went to the, the encampment of the Israelites. And so the, the, the encampment would have been a little bit off of the edge of the hill where they would have stood. So the encampment was there. He gets to the encampment and the soldiers are actually going out to the battle line. Now this would have been really not very fun, but every day they would leave their encampment, they would get whatever armor they had, they'd get their weapons, they'd go stand right at the edge, pretty much where they wanted the Philistines to try to attack them, and they would stand there. They would have their battle cries, they'd all try to be rah-rah, and then Goliath would come out. Well, when David gets there, they've kind of already left the, the, the encampment, and so he leaves the provisions with the keeper of the baggage, and he goes to the battle lines because he wants to visit his brothers. You can definitely see how older brother would be like, go get out of here. This isn't a spectator sport. You need to go on back home and, and watch after those few sheep. You can see how he would say that. But before he even gets to say that, that's when Goliath comes out. And so David hears this. And, and that's another fun... Oh, uh -oh, sorry, y'all. That's another fun verse. Um, down there in verse 23, the very last couple of words, and David heard him. That's another fun thing. David was there. He heard it. So here we are. Goliath has said what he has said, and it's thoroughly insulting. It's definitely fighting words. David hears it. And David's wondering why has no one yet responded? You know, what, what's going to happen to the person that kills this guy? Like, what, what are we doing for that guy? And so they, they tell him all the rewards. Apparently Saul had already kind of decreed these things. Um, I almost, almost missed a blank there. The Lord ensured that David would hear Goliath's challenge. What I mean to say is that it wasn't happenstance. It wasn't a coincidence. God put him there as a divine appointment so that he would hear Goliath's challenge. That was important. 
Um, so Saul had already told what was, what was to be said, uh, what, was, what was to be done to the person um, that, that defeated Goliath. There was money, uh, there was a, a, you know, family was going to be tax-free, which honestly David didn't have to worry about because he was going to be king, king doesn't pay taxes, but that's a story for another day, but also he was going to get to marry Saul's daughter. That varied based on the daughter, I guess. Um, could be a reward, could be something else. But anyway, so Saul goes um, through this whole thing of, or well, David goes through this whole thing of asking multiple people, is this a reward, is this a reward, is this a reward? And it's not super clear. It just seems like it's this, the story kind of building why David had to verify this from many different sources. But somewhere in the middle of that, his brother hears him. That's when his brother says, you just need to go home. You're just causing trouble. But enough people start hearing David ask these questions that they go to Saul with it. And so David is brought before Saul. And right away, David tells Saul, hey, you don't, you don't have to worry about this giant anymore because I'm going to kill him. When David speaks to Saul, he speaks with such confidence. But it's not confidence in himself. We do see that, that David is not boasting in himself. He's boasting in the Lord. Saul doesn't believe that David can defeat the giant. He says, you know, God be with you. God bless you. Bless your heart. But he doesn't necessarily believe that David can defeat the giant. But David's answer is this. God has delivered me from a lion. God has delivered me from a bear. And he's not necessarily saying a lion and a bear. He doesn't mention those two, but it could be even more than that. Um, but what I would suggest to you is that I'd, if I had to choose between fighting a guy that was almost 10 foot tall and having to fight a bear or a lion, I'd take a minute to decide because I don't really know what kind of fight you want to get into. I mean, none of those are good, enjoyable fights. David had already been in two of them, so there was just one thing left for him. So what we know is that, that David says, I've already been in these fights. I've already been there. And I think David understood that he shouldn't have prevailed. Like he shouldn't have won a fight against the lion. He shouldn't have won a fight against the bear. But God delivered him from the hand of those beasts. And God is going to deliver him from the hand of this Philistine. And even more so because the lion did not offend God. The lion stole a sheep, which is kind of what it's supposed to do. The bear didn't offend God. It stole a sheep. This Philistine has offended God. This Philistine has assaulted God and his people. So how much more so is God going to grant victory to his faithful servant in this situation? And so Saul does the only thing he can do. He attempts to equip David with this very fine armor. So again, we notice the bronze helmet. This would have not been the regular headwear. This would have been one-on-one. -on -one. You get hit in the head, maybe you survive it. Your ears are ringing, but maybe you survive it. Um, he gave him a coat of mail. Again, very rare in Israel at that time to have had anything like that and put a sword on him. And so <clears throat> you can imagine David walking around. So if the armor was made for Saul, the sword was made for Saul, Saul was a head taller. David was probably, you know, about an average height. So first of all, it wouldn't have fit him in any real way. He wouldn't have looked like a kid wearing his dad's coat, but it would not have fit him. It would have affected his movement. Now, that's one thing that David would have been relying on, especially with his battle plan, was to be able to move. And so this was untested. David actually rejected this. But can you imagine uh, going out to fight this, this Philistine? He's got spear, javelin, sword. He's got some other dude carrying a shield for him. He's got all these things going on. Wouldn't you want a little protection? Wouldn't you want a little armor, a little bit of whatever? Well, David rejects this, and, and, and he rejects it on purpose. He doesn't reject it simply because it doesn't fit. He rejects it uh, for a, a really, really good reason. David had no confidence in this, and he chooses to fight the giant with the tools God had used in the past to deliver his flock. Sword pulled out of a forge, mail crafted by a blacksmith, helmet crafted by a blacksmith. Those are things shaped by the hands of man. The shepherd's staff, crafted by God. The stone that he would use, crafted by God. David chose to use those tools instead of having the best that the world could offer. So David rejected worldly power in favor of the strength of the Lord. We know that the Philistines had relied on that power. We know that the Israelites would have relied on that power if they had access to it. Uh, but David used things that were shaped by the hand of the Lord. 
we don't need the newest and the best of technology. We don't need the newest and the best of what the world has to offer to be victorious in God's battles. We need faith. We need faith and we need obedience. We don't have to incorporate every worldly strategy that comes up. We don't have to incorporate every worldly technology that comes out. We have to have faith. That's what we must have. So now let's finish this up by looking at the complete victory. So when David sees, or when Goliath sees David approach, he prepares to enter battle. Um, it probably, at a distance, it probably wouldn't have surprised him so much to see somebody coming down without shining armor because he knew that very few of the Israelites would have had that. Uh, and nobody's really going to expect the king to put his own armor on somebody else. And so the fact that David comes down with that armor, that's not all that surprising. But when he gets a little bit closer, he sees that David is a youth, with less than 20, and that's when Goliath himself is offended. He, at that point, um, is insulted. So he begins to curse David. He begins to make these threats. And at this point, I do believe that the, uh, the writer maybe edits some of this out because Goliath probably weren't so polite. Um, I, I meant to mention a while ago about the one-on-one -on -one thing. That was not something that happened in Israel so much, but in ancient battles, it was kind of a time-honored tradition. One champion fights another champion instead of the whole army fighting each other. It was cheaper that way. Warriors were expensive. Uh, a, a, a loss in battle was very expensive. It was just a, a, a better arrangement. The Philistines probably were somewhat aware of it, and maybe some of the mercenaries that they had hired told them that this was the way things were done. Um, so, so that's the plan, is champion on champion, and that settles the score. That settles everything. That, that was the plan. Now, nobody expected the Philistines to keep up with this, and if the Israelites had won, obviously they didn't keep up with this. You'll be our servants. No, we're going to kill you and take your stuff. That's what we're going to do. And that would have been on either side of the battle. As soon as the champion dies, it would have been a free-for-all either way. That's just how that would have went. Um, but that was the plan. Anyway, that's, that's what they told each other to be nice to each other. Um, so Goliath makes all these threats. He just feels insulted. This was not the first time Goliath went into a one-on-one -on -one fight. We know that. that. That's certainly clear. That's probably why he was hired, because he had probably done this before and been victorious before and saved a lot of lives. Not in a good way, just saved a lot of lives on one side. Um, so, so we know that, but when, when he sees David and he sees what he's kind of a stick and probably wouldn't have even seen the little sling that he had, so he sees that and he's thinking, oh, this is, this is insulting at this point. So he knows he's going to have to kill this kid, and, and maybe there was something in, in Goliath that didn't really want to kill the kid, but he got himself all hyped up, and, and also it mentions David's appearance again, ruddy and handsome. Um, you know, we hear that and we think, oh, he probably would look good. But warriors want to see scars. Warriors want to see a man that has been through battle. You're not going to send a, a, you know, a fresh-faced kid at me and expect me to be afraid. That was the concept that, David had, or that Goliath would have had. So when, when David comes, it is an insult. And so what David says is that you come at me with all these weapons, with all this fine technology, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. Goliath had said, I'll feed you to the birds and to the wild beasts, and everybody will know that, that we, the Philistines, are the ones. And, and David says, no, I'm going to feed all of y'all to the birds and to the wild beasts, and everybody's going to know there's a God that lives in Israel. And that's pretty much the, the, the battle talk. That's pretty much what happens. And so Goliath takes a step, but you have to understand, he's wearing over 200 pounds of equipment. And he's got a shield bearer in front of him that, that can't even see where he's going. So, you know, this is, this, he's, he's going to be clumsy as he moves forward. Well, David picks up at a trot. He's at least jogging, and he reaches in his pouch, and he takes out a rock that would have been the size of a tennis ball. If you ever go to Israel and get a chance, just look at the rocks laying around. It looks like it rains rocks over there. I mean, they are literally everywhere. So he wouldn't have had trouble picking the rocks that he wanted. And so he comes at, at Goliath. And so the sling, it's not a Dennis the Menace, like pull it back and snap it. It, it would have been a sling where there would have been a pouch. He put the, the rock in the pouch and he would have spun it around and he would have slung it at Goliath. Now, this rock would have been coming at something like 100 miles an hour. Um, it's, it's something that a major league batter would have had a hard time getting out of the way of. <coughs> it hits Goliath in the head. It says that it sinks in. That means we're probably breaking bones up here. That's not what killed him. See, a frontal lobe lobotomy won't kill you. Goliath would have never been the same at a party, never again, no matter what. But he's probably not dead. He falls face first. I'll remind you of the Philistine God. 
that fell face first. His head came off. His hands came off. When we first started this whole thing, the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant and they had this... Um, they put it beside this God and this God fell over face first and the head came off. Well, similar imagery. So, battles are normally a little noisy. People are hollering. People are shouting. People are crying. People are wanting their mommies and all these kinds of things are happening in a battle. Well, this would have been kind of quiet after that hit. And so, this rock hits Goliath in the head and he goes down. I don't believe there was a word said on the Israelite side or the Philistine side for a minute. Nobody would have said anything. David goes over there. And so there's a little summary in there, if you, if you wonder why it gets a little choppy there. So it's summarizing that David didn't have a sword. He killed Goliath with a rock. Like that, That's kind of the whole point. But Goliath probably wasn't dead when David got to him. But by the time he got done sawing his head off, no surgeon could have done anything for him at that point. So that's what, that's what basically happens. David takes that big, huge sword that Goliath would have had, and he kills him and chops his head off. And so you have to understand ancient battle, plunder was a big part of this. Somewhere in the middle of the decapitation process, because as much confidence as I have in David, he probably didn't do that with one swipe, no matter what sword he had. The people of Israel began to shout, and they began to go after the Philistines. And, and the Philistines turn and run. So that means that they would have probably dropped their weapons. Maybe not, but they certainly wouldn't have stopped by the camp to get their valuables, and they would have ran. And so the slaughter covered multiple, multiple miles as the Israelites are chasing the Philistines down, killing them, and, and, and they're dropping where they lie. And, and one of the ways that soldiers get paid is by taking plunder. So they would have probably taken plunder off the bodies of the soldiers, but they made their way back to the camp, and they would have looted that Philistine camp for everything it was worth and taken all that as well. Meanwhile, David probably had an all-day job, like skinning a deer. He's trying to get that mail off of Goliath. He's trying to get all those weapons off of Goliath, and he heads back to camp. And he goes back to Saul. He's brought before Saul. And Saul's asking, who is this kid? Who is, oh, by the way, I missed some other things. The faith and victory of, uh, the faith and victory of David inspired the Israelites to fight against the Philistines. So, <clears throat> When David gets back to Saul, Saul's already asking, who is this kid? So Saul has no idea. That is not totally surprising. Saul's kind of self-absorbed. We see that in his personality. So even though he had dealt personally with David, he probably just didn't remember who he was. And so David comes back and he has the, the sword of Goliath. He probably has the armor, but he has the head of Goliath as well. And while he's still walking around carrying the head of Goliath, which would have probably been heavy, he walks in to see Saul. And that's when he tells Saul who he is. And that's kind of where the story ends. But what we realize is that he brought the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. It's not something we practice a whole lot anymore, but back in those days, the head of your enemies on a spike out in front of the castle or whatever, that sent a certain kind of message, and maybe that's what David was doing with the head, but it says that he kept the armor, and maybe that was the token he brought back to Jesse and said, hey, your sons are fine, and by the way, here's some, some armor that's too big for anybody ever. Um, but whatever we know, we know that David shows us some possibilities here. In David, we see the possibilities for those who live in faith and obedience. At the end of the day, what David did was believe God and obey what he believed God was telling him to do. That's what he did. Now, David had some skills. I mean, there, there's no doubt that, that it, it was probably, I mean, more back then, but not a lot of people could have slung the rock the way David slung the rock. So, yeah, there were some battle skills there. And David probably planned on using that stick if he had to. Probably not a whole lot of folks that could have beat a 10-foot-tall dude to death with a stick. But David was prepared to do that if he had to. But what we recognize here is that David, in, in all of the things that, that he did, um, David was obeying God. He was placing his faith in God, and he was doing what he believed God led him to do. So would Goliath have appeared to be invincible? Absolutely, he would have appeared to be invincible. Um, but David was not looking at it that way. He was not concerned with what the enemy could do because he knew what God could do. That's an important thing for us. We don't need to spend so much time investigating what our enemies can do and what their capabilities are as we do trusting what God himself can do. When God's people will ignore the plans of the enemies and keep their eyes on him, anything is possible. 
we do need to be aware of what the world has going on, but not to the extent that we draw back in fear. The people in, in Saul's army were afraid of Goliath. It's rational, but that's not what God wanted them to do. But when they saw David obey God, conquer in the name of the Lord, then they were able and ready to go out. So it may just take one or two being faithful, being obedient to inspire the people of God then to obey and move forward. I don't know if you're like me, but I sit around sometimes wondering, when is something good going to happen? Well, it may be that we're in that 40-day encampment listening to the giant tell how he's going to defeat us, feed us to the birds and the beasts, and we're just waiting on David. Maybe there's someone that steps out in faith and obedience and does what God's calling them to do, and that inspires everyone else. Maybe it's this church that does it. Maybe it's someone in this room that does it. But what we need to know is that if we each strive to be faithful and obedient, do what God calls us to do, we can only win because God doesn't let His people lose, and we can only be um, an inspiration because we are going to encourage other people to do the same. So let's live our lives whether it's a small battle that no one sees or a battle on the scale of David and Goliath, let us live our lives believing God, not worried about the enemy, believing God and obeying Him the way that He commands us. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for this beautiful passage in Scripture. It's almost poetic in, in the way that everything is done. But the real poetry is in knowing that when we believe in You and we obey You, You will fight our battles for us. Lord, I know probably each of us have a battle in our lives right now that we can't win. But You can. So Father, I pray that You help us to apply the very simple, simple truths of this story to our lives and we might see battles won that otherwise could never be won in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for being our God, for sharing your word with us, sharing your message, and sharing your son with us. I pray that we would always believe, that we would never doubt, that we would never let fear overcome our faith, that we would trust you. And I know, Lord, we will see amazing things happen. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.